it's coach tori and this is raising runners we talk running fitness mental health and so many more topics as the founder of a youth running program i approach all of our conversations with our youth athletes in mind and kind of have a focus around those things but as you will see we are finding that all of these topics relate to runners and people who like to move and do fitness or anything like that um, relates to everybody check it out As promised, we do have a guest today, so I know that the no guest episodes can be a little different. So we are back in action um, for the new year. We have Kira Wackett, who is a licensed professional counselor from Adversity Rising. She is talking to us. Um, a lot of it is about shame um, and motivation. We initially connected over talking about participation trophies, participation awards, because as I'm sure everybody knows at this point, I am a youth sports coach. So participation trophies are always something we are talking about. It is, I feel like a very topical thing um, in the world today. So we actually are talking a lot about us as adults um, and runners specifically. Uh, I think my idea kind of also stemmed from, you know, we're always doing, going after those medals, the t-shirts, you know, have to brag about them on all the things. Um, so we really talk about like where that comes from, why we do that, how we can shift away from having, you know, that need for some of that external approval. Um, obviously she explains it way better than I am explaining it now in the intro. So give it a listen. So if you want to start by giving us an intro into who you are, and then we will get chatting. Awesome. Hi, everyone. I'm Kira Wackett. I am a licensed mental health expert, and I specialize in all things shame, anxiety, our identity, and eating disorders. So really any topic that relates to how we view our body, how we view ourselves, the way that we put together our, our package of who we think we are and the ways that that gets tainted by the world and the sort of external sources around us. So I'm super pumped to be here today. Yes. Okay. So I... I feel like I've tried to think a couple of different times of like how to even jump into what we were going to talk about. But originally my idea was to talk about the idea behind participation trophies and yep. why we're so into them because as a runner, and I think pretty much almost all the listeners at this point are probably runners, but, um, we get really into those, the medals at the end of the, the races, the t-shirts we get when we sign up for races or those, Thing, uh, you know, like the praise from all the other people on social media and stuff like that. Um, so that's kind of what I was thinking of, like, let's talk about that because I don't totally understand it. Sometimes I feel like I'm really into it. Sometimes I feel like I'm so opposite of that. So it's like, I feel like there's just so many places to go. So I guess just, can we start by talking about like motivation? I know, I think most people probably at this point recognize that there's intrinsic, extrinsic, because we hear those things often, especially growing up, mm -hmm. but like, can you break that down a little bit for us? Like what those things are, are there specific activities that like you're more intrinsically motivated to do or like anything like that? Yeah. I love it. I, I think that even as you were describing this, the two things that come to mind whenever I think about participation trophies and swag is one that the swag is the sort of proof of who you are and what you did. So the, I ran a marathon, but now I put the sticker on the back of my car that tells people I ran the marathon. Somehow that legitimizes what I do more. 
And so the interesting thing is that person might have ran the marathon for internal reasons. Maybe they really, they set this goal. They love running. They love the aspect of a challenge, the, the forced continuation and accountability that it takes to get your body to a place of readiness to run, not just a marathon, but a 5k or even a mile for many of us. But then it flips to as soon as you get the external reinforcement or somebody knows, it becomes the bullet point on the list that says, see, you're worthy and valuable because of X, Y, and Z. Here's the proof. So I think a lot of the times this swag, these pieces is a ploy that keeps us hooked to the external validation. Like what would happen if we ran and, and I joke about this, I'm definitely not a runner. I'll do, you know, 20 seconds of hit movement that might be like high knees, which is the closest thing I'll get to a run, <laughs> but I do do other forms of workout. And I had times where I, my Apple watch wasn't charged and I'd be like, well, what's the point? Why would I even work out then? Cause I don't have the proof or the verification. So I think when you bring up that, I think we're hitting on this sort of aspect of maybe our intentions started internal, but they flipped external And then the other side of what you said around participation trophies is I think what we saw is that sort of this drive to prove our worth and value and have everybody be, we we saw it was a problem because then people are like, well, what happens if my six-year-old didn't win for the MVP and now they're disappointed and we know that we've kind of deconditioned ourselves to be open to failure and seeing failure as exciting and being like, yeah, you didn't win and that's okay. Did you have fun? Did you learn anything? How do you want to grow? And yeah, they won. Can you be excited for them? Instead, what we did is we said, we're just going to give everybody a trophy that says, well, you all did this, everything. It's a way to kind of make that discomfort go away. But what we didn't do with that is to recognize we don't need anybody else to validate what you did. If you were on a baseball team, if you you know were in a running club, whatever that sort of thing was, you did that. And the only person that has to know that you did that is you. And so now, obviously, this is you know long answer long to what you're bringing up. But I think the the point of all of this is that, you know, at its root, internal motivation and external motivation are basically what's the driving force for why you're doing it? What's your why? Are you doing it for you because it's important to you? It's a value to you? Or are you doing it because of what it says about you, the performance, the the appearance that it has and the accolades that you get? I don't think a single person does anything purely from internal motivation. I think about that every time I do something kind. I love to be a kind person. I'm also aware it feels really good to be told I'm a kind person and when somebody knows that. And so I also want us to paint the picture that it's not bad. It's not wrong to want those things. And I think there's a systemic issue at play that takes a lot of joy from us of just being present and enjoying something because the way our culture is designed is it makes things become about the external overriding the internal. Yes. Okay. So I was thinking I wanted to ask about kids trophies and things, but I feel like what you just ended on was also another direction I wanted to go. So I wrote down in my, in my note, as you were talking chicken or the egg. So <laughs> do we think that, or do you know, cause I don't know if it's actually like decided or not that like society has created a structure of like, we do things for all this out external positive thing, you know, like the right. awards, the acknowledgement, all that stuff, or like, are we 
actually always seeking that. And society has now figured out like, that's how we're getting people to do things is Mm. like, you know, like I think of like Peloton too, like that's so popular because you get to compare to other people, you get all these results, you get all that kind of feedback. And it's like, do we love that? Because that's what we were supposed to like, we're conditioned to love or like, did it just kind of like, they were like, oh, this is happening. And we're like, oh, this is really great. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think it roots down to the point that all of us at our core on the same level of needs as food, water, shelter, need a sense of belonging. We need community and connection. So that is 100% a a need, a a driving, an innate driving force that comes in from the time that we are infants functioning and trying to make sense of the world. And so I think one of the things that's really interesting is how you're describing it. There's this notion of is this just who we are? And so the world responded, or are we like this because of how the world was designed? I think it's a bit of both. I think that, you know, whatever somebody's beliefs are of how we came to be at this time and day and age, we know there's some form of history that's allowed for people to have evolved to get to where we are. And so however that looks, wherever you start your timestamp, there is a first community that starts for people that community developed systems of what it looked like to function together and what it looked like to belong into that. And then over time, it evolves. What that looks like evolves. What we know about the brain and shame or brain and the the specific sort of fear of shame, because it's all a fear, it's the fear of not being good enough or worthy of belonging, is that it's gotten worse over the years because we have way too many options, way too many choices, way too much. I think about if anyone's ever been to a cheesecake factory and I remember once going there and I opened up the menu and I was like, I, I don't, I can't like, I'm, I'm going to have a panic attack just trying to look (laughs) at this menu because it's so overwhelming. And that's what our brain is feeling. So in any given moment, it's you know, well, should I go, should I be a runner or should I be a baseball player? Should I be a speaker or should I be a podcaster? Should I own my own business or should I work for someone else? Should I have kids? Should I not have kids? Should I be partnered? Do I want to be partnered? Should I go back for another degree? So our brain is constantly going through the shoulds and the what ifs because there's so many possibility, but that possibility has created sort of an instability of a sense of self. So I do think that culturally we've responded to it, but I think it's just like really effed up marketing that's fed into our shame to keep us hooked to it. So it's the promise, the guarantee, like let's use Peloton. I use Peloton, have the app, definitely didn't buy the bike. I bought the knockdown bike and then (laughs) just use the app, but they do it in a really great way. It's all like, you're going to feel like you're a part of the community when you join this. If you do these things, And with the best intention, I think they and a lot of other people show up. But what we're not empowering people to think about is you still belong to this community if you got up and you didn't work out today. You still can call yourself a runner if you're not choosing to run marathons. You can call yourself a runner if all you want to do is run around the block twice with your dog and come back inside. That's not a thing that only a certain subset gets to claim. And therefore, you have to meet a set of standards and rules or prove you get to be in that in-group. That's where I think the real issue comes into play is the structure becoming, unfortunately, a system of exclusion versus a system of inclusion. So what I was going to ask you was if like those external motivators are good or bad, or like, is if you're more intrinsically motivated, is that good or bad? But it's kind of, to me, at least what I'm hearing is 
maybe not to label them good or bad, but like those, those external things are probably not making us feel that much better about ourselves if those disappeared, right? Like, is that more what it is? If we have those, you know, in, you know, I'm internally motivated. I want to do this for me. I don't care if anybody else sees it, knows about it, acknowledges it, then like that won't be taken away from me. That doesn't really feed Mm -hmm. on my shame. Is that kind of how that goes? Yeah. So the, there's a really, Kristen Neff is kind of a leading person in the self-compassion world. And what we know is that, and Brene Brown, who does a lot of work on shame and in her most recent book, Atlas of the Heart, she basically breaks down the 87 most dominant emotions, the emotions that we need to know or kind of experience the most readily. And one of the things I think is key is that shame basically is counter to or kind of in opposition to self-trust and self-compassion. So you're looking for that external validation. So what ends up happening is you either get it and now you're afraid to lose it. So you have to stay at that level. You have to keep up with it. You can't change your mind. You got the accolades for getting that top job. You got the accolades for being finishing in the top 10 and the last in the Boston Marathon. And now you've got to keep running. You've got to keep up with X, Y, and Z to get there. So now you're in a position of fearing that you're going to lose it. Or you're in the opposite side where you feel like all you can do is constantly work to get it. And you're afraid of what would happen if you won't. So everything becomes motivated by getting that sort of external stamp of approval. All of us know we do things and we like that. Like I 100% think that I do kind like I want to be a really great mom. I want to show up and be the person that is, you know, gentle parenting 80% of the time. There are times that definitely we need to have a stern conversation, but like really leaning into that and doing some of those pieces. And I also do that for my daughter. And I do that for the feedback of like other people seeing that. But at the end of the day, sort of the question I think to ask ourselves is if you didn't get that, would you be okay? If I didn't get, and the, I think the interesting piece of it and Dax Shepard, who does the armchair expert podcast, I love his sort of vulnerability piece in this. He talks about the reasons he doesn't Google himself is because if you're taking in all those highs, you have to take in the lows because your sense of self is dependent on everything people say. So it's also the danger of, I don't think that we let it in. It's the priority we give the external validation, the priority that we give to the extrinsic motivation. If you got particularly excited about setting a New Year's resolution and didn't tell anybody about it, but January 1st just happened to be the day you were really excited to do it, amazing. But if the only reason you're doing it is because you should do something for January 1st, because that's what everybody does. And you need to take your health more seriously now because of all the shame stories and the self-doubt about your body and whatever. Those are two very different motivators to start any sort of activity or kind of identity discovery. So how do we, I guess I kind of check ourselves on that. I'm sure like you know, you have to do a lot of thinking about yourself mm-hmm. and like being really self-aware, but, um, like if I, you know, I'm not really big on all, I'll try to give a, an example, but it's like not about me and I don't want people to feel like alienated to any sense, but like I've seen, especially lately, there must be a, a run Disney event that's going on right now, but mm. everyone on Facebook is posting like all of their medals from all the run Disney things. And like, you know, just going on, you know, very excited about all their medals. I needed this medal. I needed that medal. I'm mad. Disney didn't have this blah, 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 blah. So I just was thinking a lot about like, do, do they have an idea? Like, 
someone like that, can you recognize, and I'm like fumbling all over my words, yikes. Um, can you see how like I'm into this and this is really important to me, but also there's other things that's really important to me. Like, how do you start to like repair, I guess, that relationship with like, am I only doing this for these things? Do I have some sense of like, I'm doing this for me? Yeah. Hopefully some of that made sense. Cause that was, yeah, no, <laughs> I, I think it's super important. And thinking about, so I got into this conversation with somebody many years ago that works in the fitness industry that was constantly posting pictures of, you know, their food with their macro content or their body and talking about how much they ran or things like that. And the discussion we got into is how, how do you empower and motivate and celebrate and share without having it to be so focused on these details that create competition and othering. The other thing I think that's important to bring up is particularly for women, non-binary folks, people with marginalized identities, we're sort of taught, I mean, also cisgender men, just in a different way, we're taught to, that being proud of ourselves is being prideful and that's negative. So there's this balance of like, I don't want people to hear it and then go, oh my gosh, see, you're the jerk that shared your Disney medal and you shouldn't be proud of yourself because now you shame somebody else because they didn't get a medal or they didn't run it. I think the question is to sit with and ask ourselves before anything that we do, why? Why am I posting that? You know, so if it is, let's say it's on social media, why do I want to share this with other people? Is it because I'm proud of myself and I want to acknowledge something that's really important for me? Is it because my timeline is something that I curate that is my memory book, that is stuff that I'm super excited about? Am I posting this to prove to people that I did it? Am I posting it for their celebration? Am I posting it for their you know, feedback, whatever it is? And I think if at the end of it, you go, gosh, I'm really effing proud of this and I want to share this with the world, share it. I think if you're sharing it because it feels like then it justifies or validates or proves what we're doing, ask yourself if there's a way to be proud of yourself without feeling like you have to get that external approval. Can you look at that medal every single day and feel your cup full because you know that you did that? And I think that's the distinction. And I don't think it's hard and fast. I post stuff and then I go, dang it. I was definitely looking for validation there, you know, <laughs> or I'll like say yeah. something to somebody and I'm like, man, I really thought that was coming from a place of like just trying to do goodwill, but I definitely knew I was going to get that sort of the accolades, you know? And so I think about that. I also think about consistency of what if you didn't have that medal to share? Can you still be equally proud of yourself? And can you post that too? Can you, when you finish a race and your time wasn't what it was, instead of even posting about your time, could you just say, I had such a great day today running this marathon. It's so fun to be with my body and to challenge it to do these things. I know we're using marathons as the example, but any run, you know, mm -hmm. any movement, any activity that you're doing. And so I think it's that piece. I think the question is really kind of twofold for people to say, what are my values? What are the most important things to me? And another version of that question is who and what do I want to be held accountable to? And when we get clear on that, everything we do gets filtered through that. So your why is your values check. What is the the driving force for doing it? And when you realize that maybe you did it for those external reasons, then instead of beating yourself up about it, you practice some self-compassion and you say, okay, 
I must be having a hard time right now feeling like what I did was worthy if people didn't see this or if I didn't prove it. What am I missing? What does my body need? What does my soul need? What does my brain need right now? Because something doesn't feel, I don't feel solid in myself without that from other people. Yeah, no, I love that. And I like also that you said it doesn't have to be like, I'm now I'm, I got it right. I'm on it. Yeah. I'm always going to ask myself this. Cause it's like, yeah, I think I also have moments where I'm like, I feel like I'm really self-aware. I know exactly why I'm saying yeah. these things, things. And there's some, I'm like, what, why did I do that? You're right. Yeah. So no, uh-huh. I think that's, that's so helpful. Um, switching gears a little bit yeah. to talking about youth sports. And I I've been slowly, slowly pivoting away from just focusing on youth sports because that's what I was mostly talking about. And then I was like, ah, oh, everybody. Right. Um, but I just keep getting stuck on, and I'm sure there's like probably a more simple answer, but the participation awards versus winners and losers for kids, especially because I feel like there's probably a, a, something we should probably do with that. That mm-hmm. could also help shape not getting to like where a lot of us are now. Right. Um, because I, so my youth running club, we don't do participation awards necessarily. And I think we talked about this when we first spoke on the phone, it's like each kid has to set a goal at the beginning of the season. We work on that for the entire season. And at the end of the season, they run whatever their race was with their goal. They always end up getting the medal because they always either accomplish their goal or they like worked really hard to get to their goal. So they do get that medal for that. Um, we have had kids in the past though, that are just like, well, did I win? Or, well, I, I won. So what do I get for winning? Mm-hmm. And it's like, you ran a different race than someone else. Or even if you did run faster than someone else, like that wasn't the point. And I try to reiterate that, like the point was for you to run against your goal, but also, I mean, there are winners and losers of things. So like, that does have to be part of it. And you said like the whole failures, like we need to be excited to learn from failures. And we do try to talk about that a little bit, but I guess like, is there, a right approach to that? Or is it all just like the conversation around, like, if you are doing participation in trophies, like explain why, if you are doing winners and losers, explain why, like, is there a a good way to go? I I started to kind of chuckle internally as you were saying this. I grew up (laughs) not doing any organized sports when I lived with my mom. And then I moved in with my aunt and uncle for a while. And I had three cousins. One was my age, one was a year younger, and then one was five years younger, I think. And the my age and a year younger, they were both boys, like super into sports. Like everybody had to do a sport in that house. So when I lived with them, I I had to pick sports every single season, and <laughs> which was obviously great. And it was over time, but it was such a jarring experience for me. But having come into the experience in a different way, like my husband sometimes I think cannot stand playing games with me now because I genuinely want everyone like I think everybody wins if they're coming to the space and having a good time and being willing to be vulnerable enough to play the game because when you're playing and I'm thinking like board games right now but like when you're playing a game you are risking failure you're risking being seen as not being perfect which is literally the thing that your shame is trying to fight against is trying out for something and it not working out the way you want most people don't go into playing a game or going to run a race going like, gosh, I really want to get third or like, you know, right. I want to, I want to come in last. Like that's the goal. Some people do it. Of, I just want to finish, mm-hmm. you know, I'm competing with myself or I want to improve my time, but we all have that drive. And that some of it is innately in us as a human species. Like that is sort of animalistic to compete with each other. My take, which I think everybody in the world of shame, parenting, psychosocial development has different ideas. 
I think so much about where things go wrong is we sort of use band-aid solutions with no real conversation or exploration. Some kids are going to respond way better to a participation trophy. Some aren't. Some teams, the design is going to be such that having that makes a lot of sense. Like what you described, like everyone gets a medal or a trophy in some way, but it's personal. It's theirs. So yeah, you're not giving one kid a medal or one, you know, but there isn't one best. But I think the problem we miss is so then when that kid comes up and they're like, well, I did the best. So what did I win? We can talk about what does it feel like for you to win? What is what makes that important? What would it have been like if you lost? What do you think Charlie's feeling? Because they lost the race today. And what do they need right now? How do we? And I think just exploring that, because one of the things, and I think throughout my education, but particularly in grad school, I looked a lot at kids and gifted and talented programs and the effects that that had long-term on their sense of self. And as a kid that was put in a lot of these programs, I never failed Granted, again, I didn't do organized sports for a long time, so I didn't have to experience the losses in that way in the same thing, but like I didn't fail. So then when I got to college, when I was in high school and I did club volleyball, because I did end up getting into it and we would lose, or I didn't make the position that I want, or I was second start, like that was way harder for me to deal with because it wasn't normalized as a thing that you could celebrate. It was a thing that was we just don't talk about that or like, how do you get better so you can be the winner next time? And I think that's the thing that we're missing out on is how can we find the ability to have people feel sad when they don't accomplish a goal? How can we have them know that it's okay that they didn't win and they feel kind of bummed out and still celebrate what they did and still be excited for the winner? And I think those are the conversations we need to have. I know I'm not answering your question of like, should you or shouldn't yeah. you with, with teams, but I think my, my hope is I want, you know, so my daughter's going to be three. She's going to do baseball this spring. She wants to do baseball and soccer. So she's signing up for these things. She, at three, we play board games and I win sometimes. Like I don't, I, you know, a little bit, I give her help because she's three when she's seven, it might look different, right? but I win. And I practice with her what that's like when she loses, you know, mommy won this time. Do you want to play again? You know, or what happens when mom wins or you win? I think it's important that all kids get a chance to play when it comes to that or like in running, that all kids get a chance to run the race. If they're seeing that only so-and-so gets played because they're the ones that are the best, I don't think that's helpful. Mm-hmm. I think, sure, you want to be in the NBA, you're probably, unless you're, you know, in the starting rotation, you might not play as much. You might only get 30 seconds. How do you be happy with that? But when they're little, I think it's the idea of saying everybody has a role. Everybody has a right to work on getting better. And we're not going to exclude you because you aren't as good as someone else. And it's okay to celebrate people that have different talents and skills and have been doing different things. The last thing I'll say, because I know I'm being very long-winded about this, is I also think we have to take into account privilege with that. So I think a lot about like, you know, running not as much because you don't have to do as much equipment or things like that. But I think about, you know, I had a client whose kid was in hockey and hockey is a very expensive sport Mm -hmm. and wanted to be on a traveling hockey team, worked really hard to do that. But there were kids that were on their hockey team that have been doing it since they were probably my daughter's age, you know? And so, and they had the money, the skill, the the access to things that allowed them to develop the skills at an earlier age and at a faster rate. 
So one of the things I also think sometimes that the participation trophies tried to do was even the playing field to say, everybody's coming in with different talents, skills, circumstances. How do we honor everyone's here? I think finding the solution is a, a place somewhere in the middle. How do you do that? And I love what you do with the individual goals. So they are setting them for themselves. I think one step further, maybe you already do this, would be as the the year progresses or time progresses, checking in with them about, did your goal change? Do you still like this goal? Are you excited about it? Because that also allows us to say, wait a minute. I mean, I'm sure you've seen this before. I had a client recently that was like, so I'm finally going to give up running because I hate it. And I've been trying to force myself to be a runner because that's what I thought was health. That's what I thought exercise looked like. I'm going to give myself permission to give that up. My goal is to figure out what healthy means to me and movement means to me instead of continuing to do this thing. So I think that question for kids, and then I think helping them start to recognize what it feels like to win, to lose, and how to celebrate both sides of it. Yeah, no, I think that's awesome. And I kind of knew, I was like setting you up when I asked that question, because I was like, I can pretty much guess that like there's not going to be like a do that right. answer. I'm like, I shouldn't do that to people because it's like not fair to be like, answer this. But I know you No, can't. I love it. <laughs> I love it because the point is like all of us got taught that like it should be a right or wrong. I mean, obviously we both know what it's like as a parent. Like you do something and it didn't work out and you go, shoot, I was supposed to gentle parent here and I should have said this thing or I was supposed to do this thing or this is how bedtime is supposed to look. Right. The reality is everything is evolving and changing. And this is so kid specific. What my kid's going to need to nurture her self-confidence is going to look different from somebody else's kid. The other thing I think is important with that is like the caregivers being more actively involved in that. Mm-hmm. That can't just be on the coach to talk about that. How is it being talked about at home? How are they supporting winning, losing everything in between goal setting? Like, what does that look like? And I'm sure you've seen this with different parents, with the kids that you work with that can be a drastically different conversation depending on which family you're talking about. And so even what you're doing is going to be eroded by whatever conversations happening at home anyways. Right. And it's, it's funny. That's like one of the biggest reasons I started podcasting was I always was doing like an informational newsletter because I wanted mm-hmm. everyone to be on the same page. I wanted people to understand like all of the points of everything that we were doing. And, um, and then I realized like newsletters aren't as easy probably as listening to something. So, um, you know, to get into all that, yeah. (laughs) one more question I have for you, I think it's probably the only one. And I'm, I feel like you answered it in pretty much all of your answers, but as you were giving your explanation on like the kids and all that stuff, I was thinking about, we did a race over the weekend and this was me, not the kids. Um, and I watched, you know, it was just a 5k. So it's easy to watch everybody finish. So watch the last person coming in. And as she's finishing, you know, I hear her say that was four minutes faster than last time. And my friend and I who were running, I was just like, oh my gosh, like, that's so great. And then I was like, this may sound really annoying, but like, I love, and am so inspired all the time by people who do things that they're not good at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, that sounds really lame, <laughs> but, um, I do not like doing things I'm not good at. And I feel it, yeah. when you were talking about like, you know, the gifted kids and not failing and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking like, okay, that's, that's me in a sense of like, I hate failing and I, I don't like doing things I'm not good at. I don't like doing things I don't know how to do, which I think is, you know, a lot of people can be like that, but like, what is, is there a first step on like how to get out of that really. So like in my head, I'm just like, I need to just sign up for something I'm not good at and try. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's 
probably a good place to start, but also like, I would like to have some like in my head, just of like, this is how I need to think about, or this is what I need to be prepared for. Cause I feel like I've done things I am not good at. And like, you know, this whole past year of like starting new job things. And it's like, I find myself always just being like, I failed. And like, you know, having like a mm-hmm. breakdown cry moment of like, I just hate feeling like a failure. So where do we start with that? I'm sure it's very people specific, but um, is there like a general of like, I'm starting something new. I know I'm not going to be good at it. How do I get my brain ready for this? Yeah. Well, two things when you were talking, one that came up and this is sort of an aside, but the sort of law of averages is I think a big thing that we struggle with too. So to get at your point about not doing things that we're not good at. I think I use the right number of negatives there, yeah. but the idea of that is we start to, the more we exist in shame, the more we exist in, again, this idea of not enoughness and needing to perfect our image or perform in a certain way, have the bullet point list, have the certain appearance, the persona, whatever. We start to kind of tunnel vision how we spend our time and energy. So we focus more on perfecting rather than expanding. So it becomes about, you know, I'm the runner. And this is what I do. Now, the the trick with that is what happens if something happens and you're no longer a runner? Your identity isn't diversified. So it feels like it's a way bigger hit to your sense of self if something changes because you've associated you as a person with you as a runner. So there's this piece there that I think happens for us when we get a little bit siloed or a little bit again, sort of closed in or tunneled on what we focus on and what we do. That's not to say that if you have a few key roles that are important, that there's anything wrong with that. It's just a thing to be mindful of. But one thing I think is important is to realize, so even when you heard that person say, God, that was four minutes faster than last time, I wonder if she could have been equally as excited if it was four minutes slower than last time. Because again, one of the issues that we get into is then it starts to be, well, every time, I mean, I do this even writing a blog post or a YouTube video, or I'm sure you've done this even with like a podcast episode. Okay. I got, you know, a hundred views on this one. Now I got to get 150. I got 150 views on this one. The next one has to be this. And then you get crickets on something. And then again, your sense of self is eroded because it's all a sneaky way for external validation because Mm -hmm. it only says something valuable. If you keep sort of besting yourself and improving and you have that validation to kind of put that out there. So I think that's one thing I thought about. The second thing to kind of get at your bigger question around, again, what do we do with this sort of, I'm afraid of failing. I think the biggest place to start is to ask yourself why. So your fear of failure, and that's where it might get more person specific. For most of us, the fear of failure has to do with the fear of rejection and perception. So I use the example all the time of if you were going to bake a souffle for the first time, you wouldn't want to bake a souffle when you have 12 people that you're hosting for a dinner. You would rather do it a night that you're by yourself so that if it flops, you are the only person that experienced that failure. So if your failure is really about the fear of being seen in your failure, and what would that mean if you didn't have that? And so for a lot of us, it's getting clear on what are we afraid that people will think of us when we associate that word. And it's, again, going back to shame makes us think it's a problem with us as a person, as opposed to saying like stuff that I'm confident in, I fail at all the time. I'm incredibly confident as a speaker and as a therapist. I say the wrong thing all the time. 
but I can like brush that off because I'm, I have self-compassion. I have gone into that saying my job isn't to be perfect. My job is to explore and be open to a conversation, but other things like the running my business side of it, the, you know, the parenting side, that's a big part of my shame. Even the example of the working out, it was like, well, if I can't prove by my fitness tracking apps, how many times I've worked out and what I've done, like, do I even really care about my health and well-being or, you know, whatever thing or your budget, whatever it is, but you get fixated on that. So I think it's, it's asking yourself, what is it that you're afraid of if you fail or when you fail? When has that happened before? So we know if your brain has timestamped something because you're likely still kind of going back there and you're afraid of, you've coded that feeling. It's the thing that around public speaking, the reason people are afraid of public speaking is at some point when they spoke in front of people, maybe it's even just friends on the playground, they got made fun of or they said something and they felt vulnerable and ashamed. So it's recognizing the data your brain is using and then trying to ask yourself what it would be like to trust that you would be okay if all those things happened. If everybody saw you try something new, like if you went and you took a pottery class and you sucked and your pottery exploded in the kiln, like what would, what is that big fear that would happen? You know, then people would think blank. Okay. And then what? And you kind of play it through to the end to start to see that your life doesn't just end when your vase blows up in the kiln. You know, your life doesn't end when you try to run a race and you quit because your body's not ready right now, or it's not the right time for it. You would move on and your life would continue to have context. So then it becomes about expanding our context beyond the specific point that you are afraid of happening. And then the domino that you think would happen as a result. And then the last part I think you do is you just, I think it's great. The idea of like signing up for something and doing it. And that's a big ask. So when I have people start it, especially you have, you know, children in your life, get out Play-Doh or crayons and just start playing. Like that is the art of failing is creating. Because when we create, even if we have an idea in our head of what it's going to be, our brain is accessing different points. Like when I'm playing Play-Doh with my three-year-old, I don't know what it's going to turn out to be. And when I make something and I look at it and I'm like, oh, that is the the worst looking snowman I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. But my daughter is hugging it and loving it and calling it Olaf while she runs around downstairs and the head keeps falling off. Like you start to recognize that my association with failure is off also my projection of what I think everyone's going to think. She didn't think I failed when I made that. She was excited about it. She puts stuff out there that is sometimes very ugly, but it is beautiful in the sense that she's creating like, that's the point, you know? And so I think for you, that would be my three-step process. What are you afraid of and what is your brain holding on to? Play it through to the end on something you're thinking about and what you think are going to be those outcomes. And even asking yourself in that, how likely do you think this is to happen? You know, that suddenly everybody's going to not want to come work with you anymore and think that you're a terrible, you know, running club coach or, you know, whatever it is. And then third, how do you bring creativity into your life more and explore the idea of creating something that you have no idea what it's going to be and just let your brain get out of those sort of perfection driven silos. Yeah, no, that is that all of those steps are so helpful. And I feel like you probably didn't even like talk about it on purpose, but I realize I often am thinking of like, if I, like you mentioned with, you know, your work, you go into that you can fail and it's fine because you have confidence in those things. Right. I feel like I forget that, like, 
again, not everything that I do and is important to me is going to be the same. Cause I'm always just like I, at my old job. I just, I had no problem doing this. I had no problem mm-hmm. figuring this out. I had no problem talking to people this way, but here I just, you know, I fall apart every time it doesn't go well. So like also remembering that, like you can be a different person in your different places. And I feel like that's something I've been missing understanding, which like has probably <laughs> made well, a lot of these issues worse. And I think what you just said that is key. So there's a term in therapy called cognitive distortions, which basically just means how our perception of ourselves gets skewed based on the experiences that we have and the negative self-talk that we perpetuate in our lives. So even when you said like, well, I can't do this here, or I can't seem to talk to any, I mean, I had this after my daughter was born. And then two weeks later, the world shut down with the pandemic. I didn't leave the house because I didn't have to, I could do therapy online, run my business online. I didn't leave the house for minus like walks for six, eight months. Like it was rough. Like I had no social interactions that weren't on the internet. And then I wanted to go pick up takeout one day. I was like, I'm ready to see a human in real life. I can do this. And I walked in there and they were dancing to Shania Twain behind this area. I mean, we're like probably 25 feet, maybe 20 feet from each other. I went in to go grab it. They were like, Hey, dancing around. They're like, can you believe that Shania Twain made a disco song? Just loving life back there while they're cooking. And again, I speak professionally. Like my job is to have conversations, meaningful, deep conversations. I looked at this person and I was like, (laughs) (laughs) right. That's all I did. And then I grabbed the bag and I walked out as quickly as I could, got home and told my husband, I am not allowed in public anymore. And the reality is What you said when you said, like, I can't do this, I would add, I'm having a hard time instead of I can't, or this feels difficult, or I'm feeling like I can't. And then at the end, right now, because again, everything is evolving. I have PR'd. I used to be able to do X number of pull-ups. I used to be able to do X number of yoga moves. I used to, you know, be able to get up at whatever time and I didn't need this amount of sleep or, you know, whatever these things are that we did. And the context of my life right now is that I don't do them. That doesn't mean I will never do them again. That also doesn't mean that the version of me that used to exist is better or worse than the me now. It's just different context. And so I think for you and and for anybody else that struggles with that, it's how do you kind of add that layer of sort of the transient nature of things? Right now, this feels different. The context is making it that it feels hard in this moment, or I'm feeling like I don't have those skills like I used to, because then you can go, how do I address the skills acquisition, the trait development, whatever that is, versus you are somehow just broken and now you don't know how to do this and you should probably just quit your job. Right. Okay. Well, that was perfect. I feel like way to end it. Maybe. Um, I feel like it was really helpful to me. Um, but where can we find you? I know we were talking that you're going to have a podcast in the near future, but everywhere yeah. else that we can find you. Cause I know you have YouTube and all that stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. We can put it down in the show notes for sure. I think the two places I tell people to go is YouTube and to my website, adversityrising.com. And it's at adversity rising on YouTube. So pretty easy to find me in both spots. All of what I do is up on my website. And I think if people are just wanting to connect, resonate, my favorite thing is to just get an email, put something on the calendar, put a call on, or just connect over email and kind of chat about what they're looking for, how I can help and kind of explore that way. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I feel like this was super valuable and I definitely think we needed, you're my first guest of the new year. So <laughs> oh, yay. We needed some of this, I think to start the year off. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for having me. I just want to thank Kira so, so much for taking the time to talk to us and also for giving all of that really valuable information. I know personally, there was a lot of things that resonated with me. Um, I think that was all really helpful, especially with talking about trying new things because it wasn't a new year's resolution or anything, but it was, you know, something I've been thinking about is really trying to do new things, but not just new things, trying to do things that I know I'm not going to immediately be successful at because you know, failing is part of life and being able to accept failure and learn from that and grow from that is, I think, really huge. And personally, I think that's something that I really wanted to work on that I think will be helpful to me in lots of aspects. So um, all of that was really great. I think that was, you know, I don't want to say like a heavier conversation, but I, you know, feel like it's been a little light lately or we've talking, we've been talking a lot about running stuff. So I think it was a nice pivot to talk more about all of our mental well-being um, and things that a lot of us, I think, deal with or don't even really know that are are factors that may be like, oh, wow, I really do only do this because I want, you know, someone to recognize. So all that was really great. If you want to find more of her, her website is in the show notes, also linked to her YouTube, check out her YouTube channel. There are so many awesome resourceful videos there. Um, and also stay tuned because she will have a podcast in the future, you know, later on this year. So, um, Make sure you check back in with her to see what that is all about, because I think that's going to be super exciting too. Um, and yeah, don't forget about our youth mental health project, Run Best. I think I said I was going to stop talking about it last week, but I'm just throwing it out there really quick. There will be a link in the show notes too, if you want to help support with that. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure you rate, review, subscribe, all the things that you can do for a podcast that you enjoy listening to. Make sure you check out social media, our website, any of those things. If you have questions, comments, interview requests, feel free to email me at marikeerunclub at gmail.com.